0: I realize that my activism just works differently. My job is to help people to feel good about themselves in a therapy setting and also to help people to recognize their awesomeness in a different way. But all forms of activism, I think, are, are necessary for any type of social change. Hello, welcome to the 4th Space Podcast. In this episode, we're really thrilled to continue our collaboration with the Black Perspectives Office. The founding coordinator of the BPO, Annick Mojil-Flavien, sits down with anti-racist psychotherapist, David Archer for a one-on-one conversation about his ideas and his work.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Black Perspectives live podcast series at 4th Space Concordia. We'd like to begin by acknowledging that the Black Perspectives Office, 4th Space, and Concordia University are located on unceded indigenous lands. The Ganyagaaga nation is recognized as the custodians of the lands and waters on which we gather today. Jotja'a'gay, Montreal, is historically known as a gathering place for many First Nations. Today, it is a home to a diverse population of Indigenous and other peoples. We respect the continued connections with the past, present, and future in our ongoing relationships with Indigenous and other peoples within the Montreal community. We'd also like to state that the Black Perspectives Office is informed by and stands in solidarity with Black communities in Canada and across the world who continuously fight against anti-Black interpersonal and systemic racism. Welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for being with us for another episode of Black Perspectives Lives in collaboration with 4Space. Today we have a wonderful guest. His name is David Archer. Uh, David is um, an anti-racist psychotherapist from Montreal, um, who has a private practice and provides consulting services for organizations and other therapists. In addition to being trained as a clinical social worker, he is also a registered couple and family therapist. His philosophies are informed by mindfulness, intersectional feminism, and critical race theory. Today, we wanted to have David in to talk a little bit more about his practice, as well as get an understanding of what it means to have um, an anti-racist framework in therapeutical work. So welcome, David, and thank you for being here with us.
0: Yeah, well, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity. Looking forward to our discussion.
1: Yeah, for sure. So. The way I like to start this, um, particularly because often we have students that are listening in, is to really get a sense of your parkour. How did you end up doing the work that you do and what led you to your work in social work and in the mental health sector in general?
0: For sure. Okay. Well, first, um, I do have to say that even though, and I think many of the students know this, that even though this land is called Montreal, it's very important for us to acknowledge that the original name of it was Georgioghe. and that name was given uh, to this land by the Iroquois Confederacy, the Aguignan Gahaga people. And the reason why I start with that is because, like, that's the context that we all find ourselves in
2: mm-hmm.
0: that we're learning, that we're teaching, that we're participating on stolen land. And it's very significant and very important to, to kind of like highlight that even from the get go. So when I was younger, I was raised up in this environment of knowing that there are black people, that there are white people, that there are native people, that there are non-native people. And so I was raised in a place called uh, Chattagy, Quebec. And if you've never heard of this place before, that's okay. Uh, <laughs> many people haven't. Um, it's a small town that's close to Montreal, and, you know, it's a... Uh, but. <sighs> when I was younger, it was a bit more challenging to be in those types of spaces because there was always this understanding that there was like, you know, ochre crisis, that there was a referendum. So there's always this idea of land being taken or being given mm-hmm. or whose land it was, who had a right to be in certain types of spaces. So, I mean, I had no choice. I like, you know, you're brought when you are a black person brought up in this type of society, um, it's a political statement just to be a black man. Mm. It's a political statement to be a black Anglophone in uh, in a largely Francophone uh, province. So, uh, when we're talking about how I got to this point, I mean, I could like talk a bit about my CV, but it was really that a lot of my decisions were polarity responses. It was people saying black people can't do this. And then me coming from my black Jamaican, Canadian uh, heritage, <laughs> like Jamaicans, yo,
2: we
0: don't, we don't, deal, we don't deal with those types of things we, like, we don't, we won't just take that, you know? Mm-hmm. So my mother always had a belief that we were worthy of, uh, of taking up space that we are worthy of, of like, of living and breathing in like whatever space we found ourselves in. So even when I didn't believe in myself, my family would. And so, um, I originally was a software engineer for about like 10 years. And then after that, I decided, you know what, I'm going to try to take on easier problems. And I made the mistake of going into psychology. I was like, maybe I can solve human system problems. No, (laughs) found out many years that, uh, that, that uh, psychology was also very complex. But from my computer science background, I was thinking about logical ways of solving complex problems because the computer, although it's complex, it's usually going to have uh, two ways of communicating, either on or off, or true or false. And so I was interested in finding out if we can also uh, solve like, problems in our human system in, in a similar way. So I studied and I got my my bachelor's in psychology from Concordia. And then after that, I did uh, some teaching English. So I had a certificate to teach English. And then after, um, I got my master's uh, of social work from McGill. And then I got another master's from McGill in couple and family therapy.
2: Mm. So
0: I had an interesting path, but a lot of it really helped me to become The therapist that i am today and i want to just say for anyone who's listening is just to know because i remember at those times that i was like what do i want to do what's good what's what's the best career for me and all that but what's interesting is that um like every bit of knowledge that you acquire it points you in the direction of where you're meant to be and not all of the heroes wear capes but also not all of your professors are in institutions and so I found that through my life experience, it's like in a, in a way, regardless of whether you believe in the universe or God, I think that it just, like, as I started to have more faith in myself and started to believe in myself, the path revealed itself. And so mm-hmm. I started to find more efficient ways of being able to solve uh, complex traumas. And that's, that's what led me to, uh, to kind of take this course of doing anti-racist psychotherapy.
1: That's amazing, thank you um, for sharing that with us. Um, there's two points that, that you said that really resonated with me. Um, one, this aspect of of um, being worthy and how much um, the the fact that there is um, there are people behind you that believe in you and believe in your mm. work and believe in your capacity um, really can change the the entire parkour that is possible. Um, So I just wanted to highlight that and and appreciate um, you sharing that with us. And then there was another aspect that really, you know, it's funny. I I just uh, recently wrote wrote an article on um, um, my thoughts on systemic racism. And and it's funny Mm -hmm. because you're you're talking about um, how you were coming from these kind of computer systems into these human systems. And one of the issues that I see a lot around um, this idea of uh, the narratives that we have around systemic racism is that. Um, people are kind of speaking about it in in a way that I think is a little bit too mechanical, almost as if it's like systemic racism is this like big machine and we're all kind of enduring it. Um, uh, While human systems don't really work in the same way, right? Like (laughs) it's not exactly like this and, and systemic racism is not just this um, machine that's functioning on its own that like we have no power in actually addressing, but rather, that a lot of the reason that systemic racism is able to um, to thrive in a lot of ways is because there's um, a collective complacency and complicity mm. in it, whether that's conscious or unconscious. Right. And mm-hmm. um, so, yeah, I really appreciate you coming, talking about how these systems are different, right. And uh, in a mechanical system, there's a bit of a true and, and uh um, false kind of going on but in in the human system there's like there's um it's a lot more complex but I also feel that it uh, creates um if we are willing to acknowledge the issue then actually there's many many opportunities um and openings to address it because we are so complex and have different ways of thinking about mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. things
0: yeah yeah I agree it's um I think that like In our culture, uh, we have a culture that that does actually operate in terms of binary systems, in Mm -hmm. terms of true or false, good or evil. And I think what we need to understand is that nature doesn't function always in terms of true or falses, and that when we look at things like war or white supremacy or patriarchy or sexism, these are actually artificial systems that we've implemented. These are like, they create... Pathogenic memories; they create uh, suffering in our in our world, mm. and so I think we have to be careful when we walk the line of uh, either or, and we have to start to think about both end. So we have to be a bit more um, flexible. Uh, computers are able, like even though at the basis it's true or false, computers are capable of complex things. So I mm. I don't see why we need to have systems that are so outdated and this is 2021 and we're on zoom calls using <laughs> software with microphones and like we're doing things that our ancestors never thought were possible but um i i think we need to do the same with an update and upgrade of our social political systems as well
1: yeah a hundred percent you know i i think about that a lot about how uh how we're able to function as a society through a pandemic. And yet we still don't have solutions for racism. <laughs> I mean, come on. Yeah. 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 <laughs> that yeah, made, that doesn't make any sense
0: <laughs> for real. And I, and I don't mean to disrespect no astronauts or nothing, but like, I do respect the fact that we can put someone on Mars or put a robot, I think put mm-hmm. a robot on Mars, but I I'm still very interested in how we can get in touch with our spirits.
2: Mm-hmm. I'm still
0: very interested in how, we can start to uh, learn to love ourselves. And I think the science, we're still trying to figure this out in psychotherapy. We're still trying to figure out the brain. And so, yes, there is this doctrine of discovery that exists in our culture of trying to put uh, put a flag and say who discovered what and, and all that stuff. But I still do think that the most important mysteries uh maybe they were solved at one point in our humanity, but from our Western, from the limitations of our civilization on this <laughs> side of the planet, uh we need to rediscover what it means to be more fully human and what it means to really love ourselves and to love one another.
1: Mm, yeah, definitely. So what does anti-racism then mean for you? Um, and how does that inform the the work that you engage in? I was um you know, when mm-hmm. we met um, it's, it's funny because i've I've met a lot of um, people who do anti-racism anti-racist work in general and
2: mm-hmm. it,
1: there's an interesting pairing that I had never heard till we we met of anti-racist psychotherapy, which you know it's it seems like something that we should have been talking about for a very, very long time, but you're the first person that really brought that to the table for me and and I'd love for you to kind of unpack that for us all.
0: For real. But although I'm the first like Canadian I've seen speak about these types of things, I mean, like, uh, France Fanon is one of the earliest people who spoke about, like, just the uh, like internalized oppression. He's one of the mm-hmm. first that I've seen. But there could be others beyond him as well. Like, um, uh, just because I wrote the book on it doesn't mean that I know everything about what's out there, and I'm still learning. I'm mm-hmm. still still trying to figure it out myself. But what I will say is that... Uh, Anti-racist psychotherapy means taking down statues. That's what it means. It means that these things that we have put up from years ago that no longer represent who we are centuries later, uh, that we need to update and upgrade them. Um, We know that psychotherapy, a lot of it is founded on the basis of whiteness and on the basis of an expert knowing what someone who's not an expert should be doing or should be living the reason why we say that i'm not saying anything controversial because the apa the american psychiatric association recently apologized for its role in systemic racism and all that Mm -hmm. so i'm not saying anything too controversial you know but what's funny actually if i can segue it's like even five years ago you couldn't even say white supremacy without people getting scared Mm -hmm. and now it's like because this is the job of the therapist is for us to to speak about the things that do cause us pain and suffering sometimes. And medicine doesn't always taste good, but it's usually good for you. So any person who's listening to this and feeling like, what? He said white. He's not supposed to use words like that. Or what? He said white supremacy. You're not supposed to use that combination of nouns. It's, it's just to understand that we, um, as a therapist, my job is to help people to bring the unconscious to the conscious so we can transmute it. heal from it forever Mm -hmm. and uh so anti-racist psychotherapy is it's strange that these things haven't been linked to together but um marketers know a lot about therapy i took a marketing class when i was in i think i was in concordia yeah i was in concordia at the time i took a marketing class and i super i was so impressed to find out that like they were studying the same things as psychologists were it's like what the Yep. they they take a lot from that. So if we think about politics too, I think that politicians also know a lot about psychology as well. And like media personalities, they know a bit about psychology. They know about types of words to use. They know about the types of images to put on newspapers when they want to uh, pathologize or like say that uh, people from different communities are bad. Mm-hmm. So it's to say that we should be talking about mental health because it's a direct consequence from all these other systemic, uh, racist, uh, events. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we talk about trauma, which is one of my interests as well, is that what a trauma is, is when something hurts you and you don't have enough resources to deal with it. So if we think on a different level, if we talk about poverty, What poverty is, is that there's a prevention from you being able to participate in uh, a society and there's a prevention from you being able to have sufficient resources to function and to participate in society. So mental illness then is that perception of adversity and it's also the lack of resources to deal with it as well. Mm -hmm. So when we're talking about racism, we're talking about the prevention and marginalization of specific people of saying that these people can't participate in our society, but we're going to make research about them. And we're going to teach in your textbooks why black people are worse than white people at every chance that we have so that we can maintain what is called the binary trauma complex cycle, which I talk about in in my book. It's the idea that white supremacy is linked to black suffering, and that black suffering validates white supremacy, and that blackness must become associated with trauma, while whiteness must at all costs be dissociated from trauma.
2: Hmm.
0: So I know as a roundabout way of explaining what it is that I do, but I, I just couldn't help but notice that the things that we're not talking about are the things we must talk about. Almost all of my black clients have been impacted by how the society views them, almost all of my white clients have been impacted by how the society views them as well. Mm-hmm. but if you're going to be like helping uh, a woman who has a mental health issue and not and you're not willing to at least be open to talking about gender, then how can you really help uh, the black person? Or the person from a different country if you're not at least willing to admit that there is a difference of how their skin looks and what that means in terms of their ability to participate their tendency to be prevented from participating in the society Mm -hmm. so uh anti-racist psychotherapy was necessary there's no other way that i can do it (laughs) there's there's no other way of of doing therapy without looking at the individual and what and and also deconstructing and and rewriting the narrative of what it means to be a a participating member of the society.
1: Thank you for that. I really um there's so much of what you're saying that's just connecting a lot of um thoughts I've been having recently. I'm, I I want to read um a definition of uh, ableism by um, Talia Lewis that I, I read recently, and so Talia is a, um, a black woman who wanted to to uh, um, give a, a definition to what ableism is, and, and um, she says a system that places places values on people's bodies and minds based on societal, societally constructed ideas of normalcy, intelligence, excellence, productivity, and productivity. These constructed ideas are deeply rooted in anti-Blackness, eugenics, colonialism, and capitalism. This form of systemic oppression leads to people and, so- and society determining who, in- who is valuable and worthy based on a person's appearance and or ability to satisfactorily reproduce, excel, and behave. You do not have to be disabled to experience ableism.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I really, I feel like there's so many links to um, uh, what you were saying there that that resonated for me in terms of um, what do we... What do we mean when people are able to participate? Whose mm. responsibility is it that people are able to participate or not, and how that shapes the entire you know world that we function in, and then of course has a, a deep impact on our um, mental wellness and um, yeah, the capacity to in, in, engage with the, the world really at the end of the day. And I feel like it, you know, what like you were saying, like if we are in a system that um, won't treat a uh, woman as a woman right? and not, not take that gender consideration into the dynamics of what she's living. Then in the same way, then how, ha- you know, we know that that would be ridiculous, right? Like that would be seen as like, oh, that's, that's so absurd. And then how then is it not taken in consideration in terms of um, race and other aspects? Um,
2: you got I'm it.
1: Gonna, uh, Dr. Myrna Lashley was at a talk the other day and she had talked about um, internal resilience versus external resilience. And she was kind of speaking about how the difference of when people kind of impose their sense of what you should be able to endure or mm-hmm. overcome, et cetera, being this kind of external resilience in in comparison to your own internal resilience of what you think you're capable of, or kind of this empowering process of being able to, to overcome. Um, and I, um, and I wanted to, to, to bring that to the table to, to think about, you know, there's, um, I think there's one aspect of anti-racist, um, psychotherapy, like you were saying, that it really is taking in consideration the person's, um, the identities and all of the social like um, constructs around how they they come to the table. But then also I wonder in that um, how then in your work does anti-racism kind of function as also um, helping uh, your clients kind of think through where do they foster their own sense of resilience in all of that, knowing that, you know, the next day they're going to be out in the real world, engaging with so many of these
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, external factors. I think a lot about that a lot is in terms of our Black students of wanting to put resources at their um, disposal, thinking about the systems that we want to unpack and et cetera, but also knowing that day in and day out they still live those experiences and so how how do we kind of foster that internal resilience
0: that's a good question um one thing though that i want to add on though is that um anti-racist psychotherapy and anti-racism by definition is going to need to be intersectional Mm
2: -hmm. so
0: intersectional is going to mean then that um the racism that is experienced by the black woman is is like kind of compounded with the sexism that the black woman experiences uh intersectionality is going to mean that when we talk about femicides we have to talk about black trans women Mm -hmm. that there's a higher chance of them being killed um, in intimate intimate uh, partner violence and what i think and the reason why i say this is because this we can't Say that any of us are free if we 're not all free uh-huh. because we 're all family, all of us come from Africa, so even the white supremacist is really my cousin <laughs> like they're all related <laughs> like we all come from the same place, and I think that what we all want we all want the same thing too like the racist so quote unquote racist person just wants to be loved and respected and and wants to feel as if uh, that they that they have a voice and that what they say matters uh the so-called oppressed person how whoever that is is also going to want to have that similar thing of wanting to to uh to feel as if they're capable of having a voice that they're capable of walking of of being safe in their bodies and there's something i think that there's a common thing that affects all individuals because Um, And I don't remember who was the person who said this, but I'm going to paraphrase it. When we look at privilege and when we look at what a ladder looks like, uh, even if we say that white male heterosexual cisgendered men are at the top of the ladder, uh, the interesting thing is that uh, there's no top of the ladder. So there's a lot of white men who feel as if they're not measuring up.
2: Mm -hmm. There's
0: a lot of white men who feel as if uh, for one reason or another that they don't have the things they were promised by white supremacy. And so it's, it's really to say that like um, it's like there's a lot of suffering that's going on with all types of individuals. And we need to think about these things outside of these binary concepts. So the approach that I use is based off of uh, what's called EMDR therapy. So EMDR stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And it's based off of, um, it's one of the therapies that's very helpful for working with what's called post-traumatic stress disorder. So when we oftentimes are going to talk about trauma, we do not always talk about resilience. But in a weird way, the traumatic response that a person is going to have would have been adaptive if they had it in the past. So trauma and resilience are one it's like they're almost they almost look like each other like they they may not they may not always look like each other but the tra- the traumatic response that a person is going to have was meant to protect them so what we are trying to do with EMDR therapy and other therapies that are based on memory reconsolidation is looking through, trying to find out all the injuries that might've happened based on the person's identity, based on their family history, based on uh, the circumstances that took place in their society, in their, in, in their family and all of that stuff in their relationships and all that. And we are trying to reduce the impact that the negative cognition, that the negative belief has on them and their relationships so that we can reprocess it and bring in a more adaptive, positive belief. So the reason why I say this is because the only way that you can get to having the properly reprocessed uh, material, the properly adapted uh, belief about yourself is by first confronting the suffering. So suffering and wisdom are linked in some way that if we keep the suffering long enough, that is all that it becomes. But if we have the courage to actually confront it, then we can start to learn about ourselves. So at the same time, while we talk about uh, some people may, some of your audience may be aware of what's called vicarious trauma, this is the, the cost. Of being a therapist and listening to stories of suffering mm-hmm. this is the cost of being a black person and watching television or um, internet videos that show black people like yourself getting hurt by police and all of this stuff
2: mm-hmm. there
0: is a cost to witnessing suffering. however there's also the concept of vicarious growth so the reason why I do this type of work is because my clients have been my best teachers I have met many people who believe that their life was at the end of of the rope. I've met many people who felt as if the world had canceled them and that they had canceled themselves. And I've seen so many people turn their lives around that I have no choice other than to believe that everyone is capable of doing this if we have the proper technology and the sufficient knowledge and expertise at this thing. So I say all of that to say that EMDR is designed, uh, there's specific phases that are part of it, but my work is designed to help the client to recognize their awesomeness. We cannot <laughs> have people heal without them seeing that they are the key to their healing.
2: Mm-hmm. I
1: love that. I'm, um, I've am i heard of uh, EMDR quite a few times and I'm, um, I appreciate you really breaking it down for us because I think that, um, for so many people's therapy, um, there's a lot of barriers to even, um, well, acknowledging that there's a problem or seeking out therapy or, um, wanting to even find out what happens behind that door. Right. (laughs) It seems really daunting in a lot of ways of like, Oh, what's on the other side of that door. And, and I think, um, what you shared with us is, is, is such a nice glimpse of, um, Uh, the capacity of the work.
0: Yeah. And if I can add another thing, it's just to say that like for anyone who's listening, uh, we we just have to rewrite our narratives about all of this stuff is that there's no such thing as a person who's broken. Mm. That stuff doesn't exist. And for anyone who's listening, just to know that like, um, it's like, I, I say this often, but sometimes I'll get some clients and they feel like their life is like a horror story or horror movie. And um Thing is, I'm not a big fan of movies. I prefer video games, but that's a topic for another time. But it's really to say that even if this moment right now seems like a horror movie, play out the whole movie and you never know. Maybe this is just the plot twist. How do you know that it doesn't become a rom-com later on? <laughs> and that's that's what we're trying to do. With therapy, ultimately, the goal of therapy is to help the client to learn the therapist and the client are educators in the therapy room Mm -hmm. is that we are trying to help individuals to learn something to, to recognize their capacities. And if we have the ability to sit with ourselves um, and to uh, with mindfulness, which is just a way of being able to sit intentionally of confronting your suffering and gaining wisdom from it, if we're able to do that and if we have this proper space and the context for it, then we're able to heal uh, from these difficulties. So anybody who's out there, because their mental health is more common than our society likes to believe, uh, trauma is much more common than, than we like to believe. For anyone who's out there, just know that uh, everyone deserves a second chance. I've seen so many people recover that I believe that we need to get more people into these fields to help other people to recognize their awesomeness as well.
1: Mm, definitely.
0: Yeah, so um for emdr again it's like it's hard to explain what these things actually are without going through it but it's based off of the adaptive information processing model there's three stages to the adaptive information processing model one is that all people are capable of healing it doesn't matter where you're from your body is predisposed to healing if you've ever seen yourself get a cut or like a a paper cut Mm -hmm. sometimes after two weeks you do nothing and it heals itself why? Because your body is trying to survive. Your body wants to heal.
2: Hmm.
0: Okay. Same thing with trauma. It's just, it's an injury, but it's just an emotional injury. The second part of the adaptive information processing model is that sometimes when there's an injury that takes place, that's more than the resources that you have available, it's going to store this memory in this distorted funk, in this distorted way. It's called a pathogenic memory. So that when you're trying to access the memory, your body feels like it's happening in the present when it really should be putting all that stuff behind you. Mm-hmm. That's the second part. So that's how trauma gets stored. That's how mental illness gets stored. And the third part is that there are things that we can do. EMDR does it, different, te- different approaches use it as well, but there are things that we can do to re-engage the body's natural capacity to heal itself. And that's why EMDR is going to use eye movement. It's going to use tapping on different parts of the body. It's going to use uh, audio, like uh, there's music that my clients will listen to. There's there's all different, there's many different ways of being able to re-engage that system. But the only way that we can properly re-engage our natural capacity to heal is if we have sufficient resources. Resources do not only mean money. It doesn't only mean friends. It means that infinite capacity that all people have of creativity in their mind Mm. the brain does not distinguish between real and perceived threats so if we imagine bad things happening we feel pretty bad but the brain also does not distinguish between real and perceived awesomeness so if we're able to imagine like who we want to be if you're able to imagine yourself walking across that stage getting your diploma then there's a positive feeling that happens in the body. The brain doesn't distinguish between that perception and the reality. So what we need to do, if we are playing it smart, is we need to understand how our brain works and use it to our advantage. So you want to feel good when you are thinking about your schoolwork. You want to feel good when you're thinking about what it means to be a black man. You want to feel good when you're thinking about what it means to be a black woman, non-binary, you want to, you want to feel good when you're thinking about, um, the fact that you have the miracle of life, like right ahead of you. Mm. So, um, I don't know who that intervention was for. I hope that helps somebody, but I, I really just want people to know that, like, um, uh, it's, it's not only about as you, I'm glad you mentioned that it's not only about trauma. It's about us. Like, um, like honoring our ancestors, the difficulty they went through and
1: Mm -hmm. knowing
0: that they are also pushing us ahead as well. They may be behind us, but they're not, they didn't leave us behind.
1: Yeah. I love that. And I, um, you know, in in the ways that I think about it often is that um, uh, we need to kind of pull away from this, um, linear timeline, right? So like my healing heals my grandma, whether my grandma's here or not, right? Like there's a mm. a continuousness in there in and our lived experiences.
0: 100%. Uh,
1: can you tell us a little bit more about your book? You had touched on it quickly earlier, but um, so David wrote a book called Anti-Racist Psychotherapy, Confronting Systemic Racism and Rehealing Racial Trauma. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that?
0: Yeah, for sure. So the thing is that, like, um, for me in this book, uh, what had happened was that, like, many of the listeners, like, the police murders that happened in 2020 and are still happening, these things, they they left me with a sort of rage and anger and frustration. And I realized that Uh, this rage and this suffering that people feel when we watch other people suffer, uh, it's capable of being toxic if we don't do anything with it. But anger is a useful emotion because it mobilizes people. And so while I do give all respect to all the activists that go out on the street and they protest, um, I realize that my activism just works differently. My job is to help people to feel good about themselves in a therapy setting and also to help people to recognize their awesomeness in a different way. But all forms of activism, I think, are, are necessary for any type of social change. But for me, I realized that I was frustrated because I wanted to try to understand why racism happens. And um, in my book, I kind of explain, um, I explain like, how racism functions as a system so it's not just a part it's not a question of like a person just being like i use the n-word or they like paint themselves a black face or any of the other ridiculous ways that you're going to see that these strange things happen but it's to understand why that happens in the first place Mm -hmm. so in the book i do speak about delegitimization which is a necessary part of any type of subjugation and in the book i spoke about uh the binary complex trauma cycle, which is just to say there's this, there's a balance between white supremacy and black suffering, and that it was something that was created didn't always exist. In fact, I mean, if you just think about it, many black people only become black when they come to this country. Mm -hmm. If you're an African, I don't know if the African, uh, the person who's raised in, in an African country is going to see themselves as our kind of black Um, I'm putting air quotes for people listening on the the radio or whatever. Um, The thing is that when you're in a different country, uh, you may see yourself as dark skin, but when you come here, you're black. And when you go to the United States, you're black. And so I was trying to find out why is that? And I was trying uh, trying to explain or trying to understand what is the impact of racial trauma. And so the book is... Uh, it is it is a book that's for people who are scholars and people who want to understand this at a high level. It's a well-researched book. And it's also to say that I was very interested in trying to find out how to reduce the impacts of racial trauma and how to get people to heal from it as well, using uh, memory reconsolidation approaches, because uh, memory and history are very important to our healing, both on the individual level and also... The social level as well.
1: Mm, I really, um, I th- that is such an important part of what, of what you said there, of on the social level and on the individual level. And I think uh, um, from from my background and um, the work that I've done uh, in my lifetime, I, I often think about that on on the community level of mm-hmm. um, how do we move towards. Um, community healing, particularly as, as you said, right. Uh, a lot of your, our community members are coming from different um, places in the world, different kind of constructs around race and how that, mm-hmm. that has to like merge in this space. And um, we may not agree. We may have um, difficulty within our own communities and and aspects like that. And um, I guess that brings me to um One of the last questions I wanted to ask you before you kind of share any last thoughts of, um, what do you hope to see um, within the Black community and um, the mental health sector in terms of your work? How do you think this is uh, going to impact our communities and our ability maybe to to move towards this sense of community healing?
0: Oh, yes, that's an interesting question. I do think that, like... um uh for me i feel as if like uh i've seen some of the most beautiful things happen so i don't do this work for myself i really think about the david archer that comes after me i think everything that i get in this lifetime now is just bonus points because i've seen too many beautiful things happen that have restored my faith in what people are capable of of course i'm discouraged uh, when I see uh, ridiculous things, or ridiculous uh, presidents, or prime ministers, or premiers, and all that, but but the thing is, um, because every every nation has uh, like is still is struggling and is always in these types of struggles, because the idea of a nation and country doesn't even really makes sense. There's no actual physical lines. All of the, countries are social construction, yeah. as much as racism is, but this is going a bit too deep. Let me let me return back to this
1: conversation, David, are
0: they? Man? Yeah, yeah. well, well, this is the thing is that I'm a therapist, okay, my job is to, is to listen to people. So when I get the chance to talk, then I gotta,
2: I gotta talk.
0: So what I'm trying to say, though, is that um, I think that what we need to do is we need to upgrade our uh, our technology. I don't think. I do not believe that people really understand um, that the goal of therapy should be to make it so that there's no longer any therapist anymore. Mm. That's what the goal should be. The goal of policing should be to make it so there's no longer police. Mm -hmm. It shouldn't be that we're doing jobs that are just responding to trauma. It should be that we eliminate trauma. That's the goal. The goal is to make it so that people traumatize people no longer traumatize other people
2: mm-hmm. that's
0: that's what the goal should be and because uh we are so limited in our old perspectives of how things are we don't dream big uh, enough anymore so my what i would love to see is for people to start dreaming again
2: mm-hmm. i'd
0: like to start i'd like to see people um uh you know like start to think like, how do we make it so that Black people heal themselves? Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like for people to start to think um, of, like, um, like, how do we make it so that, like, that, we, that we can find ways of honoring our ancestors? I think a lot of, like, the things that we're doing in the present day, in terms of polluting the water that we're supposed to drink, <laughs> it's, like, crazy. <laughs> in terms of polluting the air we're supposed to breathe. I, I just feel that a, a lot of the things we're doing are not logical. Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of the things we're doing like uh, are uh, they create suffering and we don't learn gain wisdom from it. But uh, I would love for people to start to think about how do we eliminate poverty? Because if you eliminate poverty, you're going to reduce significantly all adversity. And if you eliminate adversity, you're going to reduce the incidence of mental health and trauma. Mm
2: -hmm. So
0: what I would like more than anything is for people to, uh, to, to not see my work, the work I've done so far, as like the end point. But it's just an entry. It's just an entry point. It's like I, I'm very interested in seeing. And honestly, I'm interested in how do we eliminate suffering, uh, the racial trauma specifically from the world. And how do we do that? And so then I wrote a book about it because I'm trying to find out about it. And how do we make it so that we get better therapists? How do we make it so that so that we remember that um like that our ancestors when we when people will say I'm my ancestor's greatest dream, that's a lie. Because our ancestors were so resilient to su- to to go through what they went through and that we're here. Oh my goodness. Like I like, there's so many of my ancestors that are just lost in history. Like, I'd like to see that we really understand that Black history doesn't start with being relevant in terms of white people's eyes, mm-hmm. that Black history starts before there was a uh, European civilization. Yeah. Like, what I'd like to see is that we recover our memory and that we reprocess it and that we have the same courage that my clients have. That my clients, they will come to me and say that they suffer and they're honest about it and vulnerable. And then through their courage of being able to say, this is the difficulty I'm going through, that they can end up starting to also see the bigger picture of seeing where they came from. of seeing that they are also beautiful people, that they have strong spirits and that, you know, that, uh, that they're, yeah, that they're doing the best that they can and that, that they're worthy of respect and worthy of love. Hmm. And, uh yeah. That, that was a, an essay form question. So Now I, I gave love an that. essay form answer. <laughs> so
1: <laughs> Thank you so much. I really um so much of what you said really resonated for me and I think that um yeah, I I, I agree that this the there we have yet to even scratch the surface of what um is available to us, um, mm-hmm. what the dreams actually were, and I think that that's um, at least in my own personal journey, as well as the work that I do with um, the Black Perspective Office, and mm-hmm. is really about, um, yeah, about allowing myself to to dream beyond um, beyond what what was told that we can dream about um, for real. The black imaginary is so is so ample. and you know i um I live with my my son and my mom and and they're both and these really interesting spectrums of um you know my my son has not kind of entered the social contract um construct yet. He's been you know largely at home and, <laughs> and is and kind of hidden away from that in a lot of ways. and then
2: mm-hmm. my mom is
1: is at a point in her life where she's like, I just don't have t- much time or energy and patience for any of it anymore. And it's really interesting to see how they dream um, individually, but also how they dream together in ways that I, yeah. know, because I, I have to function in this, you know, the day to day of the social social context. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. There is. So Isn't much, the world so a beautiful place?
0: Mm-hmm. You know, it's it may not always be pretty, yeah. but it's always beautiful to me.
1: Oh, for sure, definitely. Well, thank you so much, David. It has been such a pleasure to talk with you. Um, I am excited to have you uh, join us many more times. I think that this is really just the beginning of uh, of many conversations to come. There's so much for us to to learn from um, your perspective and also the work that you've done of really taking um, the time to 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 put paper to pen, right about um, about these. Uh, these aspects that you see, I think that oftentimes, um, uh, because of our different positions in the world, we may have privilege to knowledge and information. Um, and it's, and we can, we can hoard it, right? A lot of people hoard that and, and don't necessarily feel, um, compelled to share. And, and I just want to take a moment to appreciate, uh, the fact that you've been so generous with the world.
0: Well, well, thank you, and also thank you for your work as well. Because when I was at Concordia, I don't remember them having like the black perspectives. I don't. Remember. The only black perspective I saw was when I looked at myself in the mirror. I didn't. It's like what? Oh, hey, me. <laughs> okay, so so yeah, so like that's why I want to thank you so much for your work, and just to know everyone. Everyone's contributing in the way that they can, but I mm-hmm. think we just need to try to find out a way to make this world a bit more loving, a bit more compassionate. And, you know, it's one person at a time. And it's not only just the words that are in a book, it's also the actions and also our commitment to seeing a better, uh, more love in the world. So so thank you so much for the opportunity and many blessings and blessings and strength to everyone listening to this.
1: Thank you. Actually, before we um, jump off, is there a website, uh, social media, anything of the sort that you would like to share if anyone wants yeah,
0: to? Yeah, for happy. sure. Okay, so you can hit me at... Uh, Oh I gotta sound hip. Let me sound let me sound cool. <laughs> yeah. I just recently That's joined cool. Instagram. Yeah, I just only recently joined Instagram. People are like, yo, is, how old is this guy? <laughs> yo, so um, at anti racist psychotherapy. And my website is antiracistpsychotherapy.com. And if you go on that website, you're going to find links that you can get the book. And on that of course, and some people who are like, what? I don't want to get it from Amazon. Okay, that's cool. Go on that website. You're gonna find one of my favorite black bookstores, a different book list, uh, Canadian Black Bookstore, they also have it. You can get it from there too. It's available in paperback, hardcover, and also audiobook is gonna be coming out in a few uh in a few weeks as well. Um Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I did it mys did it myself. Yeah. Yeah. So you, yeah yeah so you get to hear all my strange voices all my all my hijinks of of david archer <laughs> well th- thank you thank you i think again is that God puts us in positions that like uh, this is this is the way that I could help people and so like um yeah also like on the website if there's anybody who's interested, i'm also going to be doing a um a training in e m d r teaching people how to use e m d r um, but you do need to, yeah, you need to have a master's in uh, so, uh, social work, or you need to have a psychotherapy permit to do it.
2: But I'm going to be doing
0: the first training that I've uh, that I've seen uh, in Canada. Well, not in Canada, but I'm going to be doing my first training, uh, and it's going to be an inter uh, international thing. So I'm working with Americans, they're working with Canadians, and uh, yeah. But besides that, yeah, anti-racist psychotherapy the facebook i'm going to be working on there's a facebook public profile david archer um yeah i think that's all my my spamming i think that's all my my information for now but but yeah yeah and anyone who reads the book i'd love to hear what you think about it um and yeah but thank you so much many blessings and everyone to stay safe and healthy and happy thank you for listening to the fourth space podcast you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at cu 4 Space, and wherever else you find your podcasts. The podcast is hosted by me, Douglas Moffat, and produced by Anna Voklovek. Editing by Chloe Lalonde and Makai Halkrow. Social media and web support by Kari Balmestad. Our theme music is courtesy of Supercontinent.
2: Thanks for listening.